Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. In this day and age, our American society is more polarized than ever. The public has grown frustrated with our legal system. The words unfair, inaccessible, and phrases like lack of transparency come up way too often in conversation when the public describes our system of justice. We've heard you loud and clear. This episode seeks to address these sentiments, and we hope to do this by offering you all, our wonderful listeners, a breakdown on how our legal system works. Quite frankly, if I didn't attend three years of law school, I'm not sure I'd understand our judiciary as well as I do now. An education on our judicial courts is imperative for everyone. The general public deserves a better education on legal matters. Today, we attempt to make the law accessible to all. You'll soon be hearing from two judges who have contributed greatly to the system of justice in Arizona and beyond through their service in the courts. We will tap into their wealth of knowledge about our court system and about how judges administer justice. We will also discover that judges are real people, just like the rest of us. For this episode on the American judicial system, our guests are retired Arizona Supreme Court Justice Ruth McGregor and Judge Janet Barton, the presiding judge for the Arizona Superior Court for Maricopa County. As we proceed, we will speak about different levels of courts within the Arizona state court system. In addition to the state court system in each state, let's also keep in mind that we have a separate federal court system, as well as various tribal court systems for American Indian governments. But our main focus today will be on the Arizona state courts. Thank you both for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be with us here today helping our audience navigate the judicial waters. So let's begin with Judge Barton. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, how did you develop your interest in the law, and later in judging, anything else that would help our audience get to know you. I grew up in Kentucky, and I lived in Kentucky from the time I was nine years old until I moved out here in 1985. Uh, So I spent Uh, prior to moving out here most of my life in Kentucky but now I've spent most of my life in in Arizona since I've been out here 33 years. Um, I grew up in a small town called Ashland, Kentucky. It's right on the Ohio-Kentucky West Virginia border. Uh, It's a town of about 14,000 people. Uh, We moved there because my father worked for Ashland Oil and it shouldn't surprise you to find out that their corporate headquarters were in Ashland, Kentucky. I stayed in Kentucky until I moved out here. I'm a graduate of the University of Kentucky, both undergraduate. I got my undergraduate degree in counting, and I also went to law school at the University of Kentucky. And I graduated law school in 1985, was offered a job at Snell & Wilmer, a firm here in town. I had clerked for them the previous summer, and so I moved out here and joined the firm of uh, Snell & Wilmer. I stayed with the firm for 15 years, worked predominantly in commercial litigation, also did state and local tax litigation. In 2000, I was appointed to the bench. So how did I get interested in the law? Uh, For me, it was probably a little different path than most people. I can't uh, tell anyone that I grew up knowing I was going to be a lawyer or that I had this passion to work in the legal field. I graduated undergraduate with my accounting degree. I went to work for a small company uh, doing their cost accounting. And it became readily apparent to me uh, with an owner who had six sons that I probably was not going to advance to the top of that company. (laughs) So I started to figure out what could I do to uh, 
provide the type of career that would challenge me and would uh, offer me the opportunities to succeed and be successful in life. And there were very few careers that really appealed to me. I wasn't uh, interested in going into public accounting. Uh, I don't like the sight of blood, so that pretty much took medicine out of the picture. <laughs> and so I decided to go back to, law, back to school, and I went to law school and uh, graduated uh, in 1985, like I said before. So it wasn't so much that I had an interest in the law, I just had an interest in a profession that I thought uh, I might be good at and would provide me with the opportunities in a career that I was seeking. Now as far as becoming a judge, uh, like I said, I became a judge in 2000. And, and as far as becoming a judge, we have a merit selection system. And again, I, I can't say that I ever really had a strong desire to become a judge. It was just after 15 years in private practice, you start thinking, is this all I'm going to do with my legal career? And I guess it was a time for me to reflect and decide if I was going to change my career path and do something other than pra private practice, this was the time to do it. And. People encouraged me to apply for the bench. They thought I would uh, be good at it, and I took their advice and applied for the bench, and I was fortunate enough to be appointed. So what did that learning curve look like? Once you, you make that transition from pr private practice to becoming a judge, what, what goes on inside an individual's head when they get that position? Because that's a, that's a, great, that's a great deal, and it's, it's significant, and you're serving the public in such a fantastic way. I think it kind of depends on uh, what bench you're appointed to. When I was appointed to the Superior Court bench, we have a rotation system. So our judges serve on a particular department for a certain number of years, and then they rotate to another department. So I've been on the bench 20 years, I start, or 18 years. I started in the juvenile department. I spent three years there. Then I went to the civil department for five years. Then I went to the criminal department for nearly five years. Then I went to the family department for about three years, and a little over three years ago, I became the presiding judge. Wonderful. So I, because our system is so different, for me, the biggest learning curve in becoming a judge was learning the assignment I was on, which was juvenile, because I was a commercial litigator. So I think there's really two adjustments. One is in becoming a judge, and the other adjustment is adjusting to the assignment that you have, the department that you're assigned to. And I think the adjustment to becoming a judge for me was to realize that I'm no longer an advocate because I'd already done, always done litigation. So I'm not there to object for the parties. I'm not there to point out to them what arguments they should be making or could be making. Uh, my job is to rule on the issues that are presented to me and to apply the law and follow the law. So it takes a while to back off from that advocate personality. I probably still have an advocate's personality. I will freely admit that I still have an advocate's personality. But it, it's difficult to step back from that in the bench uh, when you first start and become the neutral instead of the advocate. Well, this is actually a perfect uh, transition to this next question. During that transition, do you remember a particular hearing or a moment in court when you became comfortable in your new role as judge and you fully accepted that role? as not an advocate anymore? Um, I don't know that, that it, it became that I'm not an advocate. You just, you just, that's just the learning curve. You just learn that you, you, you think it, you just don't say it. So you may be thinking to yourself, why aren't they objecting? Or why aren't they making this argument? You just don't say it out loud. Um, and you don't stare at them and, and throw them daggers when they're not objecting, wondering why they're not objecting. So that just becomes your style. You learn to do that. Uh, I think that when I, for me, the aha moment of I'm a judge came when judges would come to me and start asking me questions uh, or want to pick your brain on an issue. And it's, it initially surprised me so much. It's like, why would you want to hear from me? I've only been on the bench, you know, like a year and a half. They asked me to be the uh, associate presiding judge in juvenile. And I'm like, why would you want me to do this? I've only been on the bench for a year and a half. So I think it's when people start turning to you and looking to you for advice on the bench that you realize, uh, I am part of this bench. I, I am a judge. I am accepted. And, and then it really does sink in that it's a little bit more than just an eight-to-five job. That's wonderful. Thank you for that. 
So superior court sounds major or primary. If you can just distinguish these local courts for us, that would be great. And I'm probably going to refer to them as local courts because as the presiding judge, I also oversee the justices of the peace in Maricopa County, and I have some administrative, administrative oversights over the city courts. Uh, so I, I will refer to them as a limited jurisdiction court. And uh, we have a great court system. Yeah. We have outstanding city courts. Uh, our justices of the peace have come such a long way in the last probably 10 years. Think of them as limited jurisdiction courts. They just don't have as expansive of jurisdiction as the superior courts have. That's a wonderful way of looking at it. And actually, I just want to mention something. I was born in New York, and I was raised here. And I, I was never so proud to be an Arizonan until I went to law school and I had access to these courts. Because the way we do things here is so beautifully done and so organized. So I just want to say that. Thank you. And I, I'll tell people, I tell people all the time that what I find the most surprising is when I go out of state and I go to conferences or seminars, people are extraordinarily impressed that you are with the Maricopa County Superior Court or that you are with the Arizona court system because we have such an outstanding reputation outside the state. But people inside the state, uh, I think in part because it's the only court they've practiced in front of and so it's hard for them to compare it to what other states do. They don't have near the appreciation of our court system that out-of-state people have. Um, but, but it is interesting. But when you talk about the uh, our court, our general jurisdiction court, as opposed to the limited jurisdiction courts, you know, the justices of the peace, we have 26 of them in Maricopa County, and the number of justices of the peace is determined by the po population in the county. And they hear uh, primarily small claims type cases, cases involving $3,500 or less, eviction cases. They hear some civil and criminal uh, traffic cases, misdemeanors. They'll hear orders of protections, injunctions against harassment. That's predominantly their caseload. Uh, to be a justice of the peace, you don't have to have any kind of legal background. I don't think you have to have a college degree. For the most part, you just have to be um, over a certain age, you have to be a resident of Maricopa County, and you have to be a registered voter and reside in the precinct you're running in, and you have to understand English. Those are the requirements for a justice of the peace. The city courts, um, virtually every city in Maricopa County is going to have a city court, and the city courts typically will hear cases that involve their city ordinances and city codes. That's typically their jurisdiction. They also will do uh, some DUI cases, uh, driving under the influence type cases, but that's primarily the types of cases they handle. And in the city courts, each city uh, sets their own requirements for what they require uh, to be a city court judge. I think in all of the cities, other than perhaps Yuma, the city court judges are appointed by the city council. I think in Yuma it's a popular election. But in Maricopa County, I think all of the city court judges are appointed by a city council. So let's turn our attention back to the superior court and start with criminal cases. We know that most criminal charges result in guilty pleas, often to lesser crimes than those initially charged. What is the role of the judge in those cases? Approximately, I'd say 99%, maybe even a little more than 99% of our criminal cases resolve other than by trial. Our trial rate is less than 1%. So that means they could resolve by way of plea agreement, they could resolve by way of dismissal. There's various ways they could resolve, but it's not by trial. Only 1% of our criminal cases, less than 1%, go to trial. And we still do approximately 60 trials a month in our criminal department. So we have to have a system that resolves cases primarily by plea, or we have to have a much bigger bench and have to have a lot more county attorneys and a lot more defense counsel. Um, because without that, we would not be able to try many more than about 60 cases per month in our court system. So when cases resolved by plea, the judge's job is to primarily make sure that the plea is made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. So we go through a, uh, it's called a colloquy, we go through a little question and answer scenario with the defendant to make sure they understand what they're pleading to, they understand what their penalty will be if they plead to this. Um, typically we want to make sure they understand, and this is more in the settlement conference, what their penalty would be if they went to trial. 
Uh, we want to make sure that they understand the constitutional rights they're giving up and that they are giving up those constitutional rights. They're going to give up their right to a jury trial. They're going to give up their right to appeal. Um, they're going to give up their right to have a jury determine aggravators. Uh, so we want to make sure they understand they have these constitutional rights and they will be giving those rights up. So we're trying to make sure that they are entering into this plea agreement knowing the upsides, the downsides, what they're giving up, what they're getting in return, and that the plea is made knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily. Of those cases that go to trial, what kinds of things happen in court prior to trial? Large part that's going to depend upon the type of criminal case it is. Because we will hear everything from uh, theft of means of transportation, which is stealing a car, to a death penalty case. So depending upon the type of case it is, it dictates what happens prior to trial. So in the smaller cases, maybe a drug possession case or a uh, stealing a car, um, typically what you're trying to do is make sure that they're going to be ready to meet that trial date. Are you having any issues getting the evidence that you need? Uh, um, if you've sought some kind of DNA evidence or blood evidence, ha has all of that been, um, have you received the results? Has it been provided to the other side? We, we want to make sure that the case is moving along. Our primary job is to manage the case. There's not a lot of discovery disputes in criminal cases. Uh, sometimes there are pretrial issues to decide whether we're going to let in um, a prior conviction of a witness whether we're going to let in uh, other acts evidence under Rule 404B of the Rules of Evidence. So uh, there, those are the types of issues that we will be deciding prior to trial. But criminal, I will tell you, is probably the most popular assignment on our bench because it's the least amount of what I would call homework. There's the least amount of paper that is filed as in criminal cases. Uh, you don't get motions for summary judgment. You're not going to get motions to dismiss. Um, you're not going to have the huge discovery disputes that you will get in civil cases. So it is a gentler practice in that regard for the judge. And how often prior to trial do you hear a motion to exclude evidence on the ground that it was seized illegally under the Fourth Amendment? Oh, you know, we will probably hear those uh, sooner to trial than later, or, or closer to trial than earlier on in the proceedings because so many cases do plead. But oftentimes, one of the things they may talk about in a settlement conference is, is this evidence going to come in? Is it not going to come in? Mm -hmm. Typically, the settlement conference will be done by someone other than the trial judge. So they might give some kind of opinions based upon case law as to what the defendant might expect if these issues are raised, whether the evidence will come in or whether it will be excluded. The other major advantage of criminal is there's very few issues that are going to come up in criminal where there is not a wealth of case law. Missibility of evidence, search and seizure, those are not novel issues. And uh, the case law is pretty well defined in those areas, so it makes it a lot easier for the judges to rule, unlike civil, where there's uh, very little case law to guide you. All right, let's move to the trial trial has begun, what are the different functions of the judge and the jury? Basically, in a nutshell, the judge decides legal issues, the jury decides factual issues. So once the jury has been selected, there's very little involvement from the judge there on out. The judge will instruct the jury on uh, what the law is and what their job is. The judge will rule on any objections that are made, any issues that may come up during the trial that are legal issues. But the case is ultimately decided by the jury. How many members of the jury and must their verdict be unanimous in a criminal case? Verdict has to be unanimous. The number of jurors depends upon the potential sentence. The typical juror, number of jurors in a criminal case would be eight. But if the defendant could be sentenced to 30 years or more in prison because of priors or because of aggravators that have been alleged, then the defendant is entitled to a 12-person jury. And regardless of whether it's eight people on your jury or 12 people on your jury, it has to be unanimous. You always have alternates. The alternates do not deliberate with the jury unless you've lost a juror. In civil, it's not uncommon for alternates to deliberate because you don't have to have a unanimous jury. But in criminal, the alternates never deliberate unless you lose a juror. 
Back to criminal trials, or focusing on criminal trials, what happens if the verdict is not unanimous? If you don't have a unanimous verdict, then the jury is in essence hung. They can't reach a unanimous verdict, because it has to be unanimous um, that either they're guilty or not guilty. And if they can't reach a unanimous verdict, then the jury is hung, and then it's up to the state, the prosecuting agency, whether it's the attorney general's office or the county attorneys to decide whether to retry the case. Now let's turn to civil trials. Let's imagine that two people or business entities have a dispute about a contract or about who owns property or about some injury allegedly caused by another's negligence. How does that compare with our description of the criminal trial? Civil, I've always thought of as the catch-all. Uh, even commercial litigation when I was in private practice. So if it doesn't fit into family, if it's not a divorce or a paternity type case, if it doesn't fit into juvenile, if it doesn't fit into criminal, we're not talking probate because no one's died, um, it's not a tax case, it goes into our civil department. So they will hear everything from what we call a red car, blue car case, there's a car accident, who's at fault? to an uh, elaborate Ponzi scheme case. It all falls into our civil department. Um, so civil is probably the most intellectually challenging for a judge because of the issues that come before the judge, um, but it's also an extraordinarily work-intensive assignment for a judge. Yeah, I think when people hear criminal case or civil case, they think that the criminal might be harder than the civil. So I think that was a great distinction that you made that not many people have insight to. And the biggest distinction that the general public can look to for a civil and criminal is uh, if you can lose your freedom, if you can be incarcerated, whether it's jail or prison, that's going to be a criminal case. But if what's at issue are monetary damages, uh, you're seeking money to compensate you for a loss, my car was... Uh, a hit and I had to fix my car and I received injuries, or if you're seeking to get someone to stop doing something uh, and join them. Uh, my neighbors are having loud parties at night and join them from having loud parties, make them stop. Those are civil cases. But if you can be incarcerated, if you can lose your freedom, it's going to be a criminal case. And our audience might be familiar with the term injunction and enjoin is the verb for injunction. Correct. Well, thank you. We can move on to case highlights. Uh, do you remember any case that kept you up at night, just thinking about it? Because after all, we're all human. So how do judges manage their feelings? I know that's a word I, I dislike using, but feelings. And uh, especially feelings or emotions regarding a criminal defendant that you might not like when you see them. I mean, does that ever come up? And how do you handle something like that? I think for every person, um, there is going to be assignments that are more difficult emotionally than others. My most difficult assignment emotionally was without a doubt juvenile. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up with a nuclear family. Uh, my father passed away about five years ago, but at the time he passed away, I think my parents had been married over 60 years. I never doubted that I was loved. I never doubted that I was supported. And then you go to a, an assignment and you see what people will do to kids, whether intentionally or unintentionally because they have a substance abuse problem. And uh, if that doesn't tug at your heartstrings, you don't have a heart. And I think what's so difficult is you can take them out of these bad situations but we don't have the money to necessarily take them out of a bad situation and put them into the type of upbringing that every child deserves. You're taking them from a bad situation and you're putting them into basically a safe situation. And unfortunately, sometimes this abuse and neglect has gone on for an extended period by the time that the Department of Child Safety uh, finds out about it. So these kids have learned to function on their own to a certain extent. They've never been exposed to rules. They've never been exposed to curfews. And then you have to put them into a situation that may be highly structured, 
and they revolt from that because that's just you're you're taking them from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. So I think juvenile dependency cases are are some of the most difficult. Now you have happy endings in some of those cases. Kids get adopted or they find foster parents who do a phenomenal job with the kids. Um, but it's very difficult to see that type of abuse and neglect on a day-in, day-out basis. And I would say the other uh, case that really kept me up at night was a first-degree murder case where it was three young boys who killed another individual. And I think they were 14 at the time they committed, 14 or 15 at the time they committed the murder. They were charged as adults because of the crime. Uh, they were found guilty, and the evidence was clearly there to find them guilty. But in that situation, my only choice as a judge, because of mandatory sentencing, was to sentence them to life without the possibility of release for 25 years. You can't sentence a juvenile to life. The Supreme Court has said you cannot do that. You have to give them a chance to get out. But under our law, that chance is life without the possibility of release for 25 years. They'd probably been in jail for two years prior to their trial. You know, so by the time they get out of prison, by the time these two get out of prison, they will have spent much more of their life in prison than out of prison. And you know, and you sit there, and at the time I had uh, nephews that were that age, and it's hard to sit there and sentence someone that age to such a term in prison. Wow, thank you for, thank you for sharing that. So now the lawyers of the courtroom, the advocates, what are some things you wish lawyers would do more often or do better in your courtroom? And also, what are some things you wish lawyers would not do or do less of in your courtroom? I think to be successful in court, a lawyer needs to be prepared and be professional. They, know to, they need to be able to listen and they need to know the rules. So I would strongly urge attorneys to be prepared. You need to know your case better than I do. If I know your case better than you do, you're not prepared and I will have read everything before you come into court. Uh, you need to listen in the sense that if you're coming in front of me on a civil case and it's a motion for summary judgment and I've told you I've read all the pleadings um, but if you have anything else to add this is your time to do so. Do not just stand up and recite your pleadings to me. I just told you I've already read them. Um, this is your time to tell me anything that maybe wasn't in the pleadings. And when I say know the rules, I had an attorney one time who objected during uh, redirect that it was, uh, or cross-examination that it was exceeding the scope of direct. That's the rule in federal court. It's not the rule in state court. And so when I overruled the objection at the break, they got quite upset at me. And I thought I was actually doing them a favor by not calling them out in front of the jury that they were citing me to a rule in federal court, not state court. But know your rules. As far as what you shouldn't do, uh, again, it goes to being professional. You need to understand that all it's, although it's an adversarial system, opposing counsel is not your adversary. And so you need to be professional to opposing counsel. Don't snipe at them. Don't roll your eyes when I'm making a, a ruling that you don't agree with. Uh, I pretty much know if I'm ruling against you, you're not going to jump up and down and applaud my ruling, but you don't need to roll your eyes at me or uh, throw your head back. Wow. Um, you need to make sure you're not making personal attacks against opposing counsel, particularly in pleadings. I, I'm, I'm less impressed with flowery adjectives in pleading than I am just giving me the law. I got a lot to read. Our civil judges have a lot to read. So just give me your arguments, get to the point, cite me the law, and, and move on. But don't use the opportunity to make attacks on your opposing counsel. I'd just like to thank you specifically for sharing those two cases that come up uh, in your head about the most emotional uh, that you've you've been as a judge, and I think that that that's something that's really rare that we can hear from a judge. Because if you think about the public's access to the to the court, they're either in court because they're part of the case, or they're watching a law firm TV series mm -hmm. that only focuses on a very fictionalized version of what we do, and it's usually on the lawyers, not necessarily the judges. Uh, so I think that judges are mysterious in the public eye, and uh, you've really helped us and the public come closer to, to judges and just really understand and appreciate what you guys do. Thank you for so having me. Thank you. A very good transition to 
our interview now with Justice Ruth McGregor. Welcome, Justice McGregor, and thank, thank you, you for joining us. I wonder if you could start as well by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Okay. Well, I grew up on a family farm in Iowa, and when I was 12, my parents moved into town, which meant we were in a town of about 1,600 people. Um, I, when I, after graduation from, from high school, I expected to be, this was in 1961, so most girls were going to be a clerical worker or a nurse or a teacher. And I started college at the University of Iowa thinking I was going to be a nurse. I was quickly disabused of that notion and it would have been a terrible profession for me. Um, and then, so I was getting my teaching degree. I was on the university debate team and most of the people on the debate team uh, were men and most of the men were going to law school. So that's when I really first thought about going to law school, but I got no encouragement at all. I was in the honors program and my honors advisor said, well, you know, you're getting a teaching certificate. That's a really good thing for a woman to do it. And no credit to me. I said, yeah, well, that's probably right. So I graduated from Iowa and then I, I did two years toward a PhD there. And by that time, my husband had graduated from medical school and he was going to do a one-year internship. And just for fun, we came to Phoenix, where we had neither of us had ever been. But what was then Good Samaritan Hospital was paying $300 a month, which was unheard of for interns, and we had a housing allowance. So we came to Phoenix for one year, and I taught high school speech and English at Central High School. Then it was during the Vietnam War, so all the male medical school graduates had to go into the armed forces for two years. So my husband became a flight surgeon, and he was stationed at the base outside of Selma, Alabama, which has now been closed. So we were there from 67 to 69, and I taught in the public high school there for one year because they didn't have teachers enough by August. So when we left Phoenix after our first year, our plan was to go to a city where my husband could do the residency he wanted, which was plastic surgery, and I could finish my PhD program. We really missed Phoenix and wanted to return, and ASU didn't have the program that I needed. But I said, let's go back and I'll think of something else to do. And so that gave me another chance. Luckily, ASU had just started, opened its doors a few years before that. And so I applied. I applied late, I have to admit, but uh, Dean Matheson called and told me that I was going to be admitted in the, the next law school class, which was 1971. And so that was a fifth entering class at ASU, which now, of course, has become this much larger, uh, very highly ranked school. So I, I graduated from um, ASU and went to work for Fenimore Craig. I was the first woman there. It was the first year most of the large firms hired women, at least directly out of law school. And I was, I was a trial lawyer. Um, never really thought about being a judge. I thought briefly about doing a, a clerkship, a judicial clerkship when I graduated. But you know, I was 31, which I thought was really, really ancient. And I thought I really <laughs> should get to work while I still had time to practice. So I went directly into practice. Um, and I became a partner at Fenimore Craig. And then uh, Sandra O'Connor was appointed to the Supreme Court. And I had done a lot of work with her husband, John O'Connor, who was a partner at the firm. And I guess on, on his recommendation, she asked me to join her as a law clerk during the first term. So I left the firm. I couldn't actually tell from the federal regulations whether I had to resign from the firm or could take a leave of absence if I was to be a federal government employee. So I resigned from the firm and went and clerked that October 81 term for Justice O'Connor. Then I came back after that, went back to work for Fenimore Craig. But the year that I was a law clerk was what really got me thinking about being a judge. I, um, I was just fascinated and impressed by how careful they were with the work they did and how much effort went into the research of the cases and, and the writing of the cases to make sure they were clear. And it made me think I might want to do that. And one of the things that happens in law is, as Judge Barton knows, because she also practiced 15 years before she went on the bench, the more experienced you get and the more expensive you get, the farther away you get from the basic research and writing of the law, because clients can't afford to pay you to do that anymore. So very good associates do that work. 
but it was one of the parts I really liked about practicing law, and I could see I would never have a chance to really do that as a, as a litigator, um, although we were still able to do appellate work for our, our cases then. Um, so I started thinking about it, and then I, um, they, they developed a new panel for the uh, Court of Appeals Division One. So there were three openings, and I applied then, and, and um, Governor Mofford appointed me. And then that was in 1989, and in 1998 I applied, not for the first time, but I applied for the Arizona Supreme Court, and um, Governor Gene Hall appointed me to that. So I was on the Supreme Court after 1998 and was Chief Justice my last four years. Thank you. So at the beginning of your career as an appellate judge, do you remember a particular case or other moment when you fully recognized the significance of your new role? I think that the, the moment, I'm not sure it was you know, a blinding light, but when I recognized the significance of my role as a judge was when I was talking to a, a, a group, a community group, and they had, they wanted so much to know about judges and how the court worked. And I realized that I had something to offer them, that some knowledge to give them that I wouldn't otherwise have had. And it was knowledge they really wanted to have. They really wanted to understand. The case that I most remember from early on the Court of Appeals was a really interesting case. Um, it dealt with the fundamentalist LDS organization up in northwest Arizona. And the question was whether one of their law enforcement officers who was in a, a polygamous marriage, I think he had nine wives, seven or nine, wow. um, was also whether he could be certified as a law enforcement officer because that requires you to uphold the Constitution and laws of the state of Arizona. Now, polygamy was not a criminal offense, but our Constitution expressly forbids polygamy. Both Arizona and Utah had to put that in their state constitution to be approved for statehood. And so it was a violation of the state constitution. So we had this really interesting case involving First Amendment issues and our, our constitutional um, prohibition against polygamy and the fact that there wasn't a, a criminal statute barring polygamy. And when those kinds of cases come, it really makes you realize what it was about being a judge that you thought you would find really interesting and challenging. And so I remember that case from very early on the Court of Appeals. Wonderful. Well, let's talk about what appellate courts do. Okay. <clears throat> and let's remember that Judge Barton presides over the Superior Court, which is the trial court where the litigation begins. But we could imagine that sometimes the losing party in the trial court will appeal to the Court of Appeals. And when that happens, we understand the Court of Appeals does not retry the case from scratch. Correct. Can you tell us what is the limited scope of the appellate court's function? Sure, and it's something that a lot of losing litigants do not understand when they decide to take an appeal. Um, with very few exceptions, a losing party in any case tried or resolved in the, in the superior court um, has a right to appeal to the Court of Appeals. Now, I won't talk about the exceptions to that. And so the appeal comes up to the Court of Appeals, but that is not a trial court. They don't have any ability to set jurors. They don't have any ability to take evidence. The, the only function of the Court of Appeals is to determine whether there were legal errors made in the trial and whether those legal errors mean that there might have been a different outcome if the legal issue had been decided correctly. Now, trial judges make lots of decisions during trials, and they, they have to be made on the spur of the moment. They don't have time to go back and research them and so forth. And so litigants like to allege that there was error that resulted from those. In fact, I was always impressed as, a, as, as an appellate judge at how very often the superior court judges got those rulings right. Um, but occasionally there's one, uh, there might have been a jury instruction that misstated the law, and if the correct instruction had been made, given, maybe the jury would have responded differently. So that's all that happens. And usually, if the Court of Appeals or later the Supreme Court finds error in a trial, what it means is that the case will go back down for a new trial. 
the appealing party doesn't win at the Court of Appeals. They might, if they are successful on appeal, get another trial in the Superior Court. And it's something that we once started, well, quite a number of years ago, a settlement program at the Court of Appeals where we, we talked to parties beforehand. And it was surprising how many of them had not been told by their lawyers that if they were successful, it would mean another trial, not that they would win the case. So it's, it's a court, it's limited in that sense that it, it only considers legal issues, and that's the basis for their opinions. And am I right that the Court of Appeals, for the most part, decides cases with a panel of three judges? Yes. And can you tell us about the process that those three judges use in reaching their decision? Yeah. The, um, it can be done a little bit differently from one court to another. Division One, which is centered in Phoenix and is basically the Court of Appeals for Northern Arizona, and Division Two, which is basically the Court of Appeals for um, Southern Arizona, have slightly different procedures they use. But mostly what happens is this. First, when the, when the appeal is filed, there are a lot of appeals that only raise issues that have been decided many times. Judge Barton mentioned that in criminal trials, most of the motions that are filed or requests that are made for instructions have been decided many times. That doesn't prevent uh, a defendant from bringing an appeal. But those cases are, it's evident what the outcome will be because the law is very settled. So most of those cases are assigned to a one judge or sometimes a staff attorney to draft a decision. And then it will be distributed to the other two judges who make comments, and the, the written decision then is filed, but it is a memorandum decision. And the importance of that is that the other type of decision is called an opinion. And that is a, a full opinion that has precedential value, which means that it is binding on the lower courts. So once the Court of Appeals decides that amendment X means Y, then the Superior Court has to apply that ruling. Those cases, which often result in published opinions, are on sort of a separate track, and they're assigned to a panel of judges. They are often set for oral argument, although not always. There's no right to oral argument. And before those, each, each of the three judges working with law clerks uh, decides what they think the probable outcome of the case is. We would meet before oral argument for a short discussion, mostly to let everyone know what our concerns were and what our questioning would be trying to get to. Um, then the arguments, which of course are very civil exchanges between the lawyer and the judges on the panel, where the judges ask questions about the case, the lawyer answers them. Um, and following oral argument, the court then meets again in conference and goes through whatever cases have been heard that day, decides what the majority believes should be the outcome, uh, so at least two judges would have to agree on the panel, and then who is, whoever is serving as presiding judge of that panel assigns the opinion to one judge. Once that judge completes a draft, it's distributed to other members of the court for their input, their suggestions, their revisions, and eventually when it's filed, it is published as an opinion for that will have precedential value in guiding lower courts and other uh, cases that come to the Court of Appeals. So that will be precedent. Right. A court below that appellate court will have to apply that same conclusion to any cases that are just like it that come Correct. up in the future. Correct. What happens if you don't have agreement among those three judges and one of them says, I think I would rule the other way. Well, and that does happen, not as often as you might think, but then that judge can write a dissenting opinion. And there are often good reasons to write a dissenting opinion. A lot of the issues that come to the appellate courts are very close. There's no clear black and white difference between the arguments being made by the people on both sides. And so the, the dissenting judge might see it a little differently, might think that the law requires a different outcome, um, might actually suggest a, a different way the case could be presented in another instance, um, in another trial that might raise the same issues. And it also is important um, if they want review from the Arizona Supreme Court. If, the, if there is a, a majority opinion and a good dissent, that's something that might need to be resolved. 
Okay. Now let's move on to the Arizona Supreme Court, the highest state court in Arizona. Right. When you were elevated to that court, your title changed from judge to Justice McGregor. The losing party in the Arizona Court of Appeals might file an appeal to the state Supreme Court. So what is the role of the Arizona Supreme Court compared to the courts below it? And how does it, that work compare to the function of the Arizona Court of Appeals? Okay. The Arizona Supreme Court, like the Court of Appeals, only resolves legal issues and not factual issues. So in that way, it's the same. All of the courts, appellate courts, only look to legal issues to see whether they would have affected the outcome of a trial or a decision below. The Arizona Supreme Court, again, with only a couple of exceptions, has discretionary jurisdiction. That means it decides which cases it will review. So somebody coming from the Superior Court to the Court of Appeals knows that they have a right to an appeal. Somebody trying to get review by the Arizona Supreme Court does not have a right to a review of the Court of Appeals decision. With exceptions, capital cases are one that all come to the Arizona Supreme Court and certain election cases come to the Arizona Supreme Court. So the, the court, the Supreme Court, looks at a number of factors. One might be, um, has Division One and Division Two of the Court of Appeals come to a different outcome? We obviously need to have the same law apply all through the state. So the Arizona Supreme Court might take review of those cases to, to resolve that discrepancy. Sometimes it's just a really important case that has never been decided in Arizona, a really important legal issue. And so again, the Supreme Court would look to that so that everybody in the state can understand what the law is. Um, sometimes they're just issues that, that have been in the system for a while and it would be good to have a resolution. And so the Arizona Supreme Court will take those cases. Now, the only possibility of review from the Arizona Supreme Court is to the United States Supreme Court. But that can be true only if the Arizona Supreme Court did not rely on the state constitution for its decision. If the Arizona Supreme Court relies on the state constitution, not the federal constitution, then the US Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to review that decision of the state court which is an interesting issue that, that state Supreme Courts face sometimes because state constitutions and federal constitutions tend to be very much the same. But distinctions in them may make it reasonable for the state court to rely on the state constitution. Now, the state constitution can't give fewer rights than the federal constitution, but state constitutions can give more accelerated rights as compared with the federal constitution. So for state Supreme Courts, the advantage of a ruling on the basis of the state constitution is that it can't, it's not subject, that decision is not subject to further review. Wonderful. Thank you for that breakdown. So what kinds of laws do judges and justices apply to disputes and where do they find it? Because we, we know where that comes from, but the general audience might not. Right. There, there are a number of sources of law. The supreme law is the Constitution, whether you're dealing with the state constitution or the United States Constitution. Then we have laws passed by the legislature or in the federal system by Congress. The state statutes or enactments are a source of law. Then we have, um, when we became a state, and this was true in many states, we adopted the English common law in our Constitution. So all of the common law actions that were developed um, they, they dealt mostly with property law and with right to bring an action if someone is negligently hurt you were all part of our of our source of laws. We can find we find sources of law in city ordinances, in um, enactments of the board of supervisors of counties. So all of the legislative types of bodies have laws that they enact, and those are laws that are interpreted and enforced by the courts. Um, and they're always, if, if the there is often a challenge being that a law that was adopted, for instance, by the legislature is inconsistent with the Constitution. And that's when the court has to decide whether, in fact, this law is consistent with the Constitution. If it is not, then the law must be struck down because the Constitution is our supreme law. So what was the most difficult case that you encountered as an appellate judge? And how did you handle the difficulties 
And what was your best experience as an appellate judge? Well, it's interesting when I was listening to Judge Barton and she was talking about being on juvenile court and that being the most difficult assignment. Because what I thought of with this question was not a case, but a class of cases. And those were cases that dealt with parental severance of rights. So the state comes in and says that under our statutes passed by the legislature, this parent cannot retain parental rights. We're going to sever them, which means that the parent no longer has any relationship to their child. And then uh, if that is done, then that child is available for adoption. Those cases obviously are very difficult. They're difficult from the standpoint of when you get to a parental severance case, those are the cases that Judge Barton was talking about where it's inconceivable that someone could have treated I always think a pet, let alone their own child, and the way that they've been treated. They have been mistreated, they've been given drugs, they've been starved, they've been beaten. It, the cases themselves are so difficult. But then there is the countervailing right of the parent. And so we have, again, statutes that say what efforts have to be made to allow the parent to correct those actions or circumstances that have led to an action to sever the parental rights. When I was on the Supreme Court, the cases involving parental severance of rights came into the pipeline in the same way as all the other cases. And so it would take about a year and a half for the case to get through the system. Now that's actually very fast compared to a lot of state appellate systems, but it was a year and a half or maybe two years of that child being in limbo there often was a foster family ready to adopt or a family member ready to adopt, but the child's status was still uncertain because the parents were appealing the order of severance of parental rights. And so we got together. It's a relatively small group of lawyers who represent the parents and who represent the state. We got together with the trial court judges, with the court of appeals judges, and with our own court, the Supreme Court, and said, so we have to be able to do this better. And this is what made it one of the best instances, uh, experiences on the, on, as, on the Supreme Court, was that everybody worked together. And the lawyers, for a short period of time, really had to work hard because we were taking all those cases that were backed up and moving them to the front of the line. We weren't giving them extensions of time to file their briefs. The Court of Appeals was deciding them as soon as they were ready to decide. We had them on an accelerated uh, calendar to, to decide whether we were ready to review them. And we got it to about 90 days from the time the trial was finished until there was a final decision. That's an enormous value to everybody involved in the system. So it was an example of a very difficult kind of case of a great lot of teamwork among all the players involved with everybody just wanting to find a better result for the children involved in those kinds of cases. And it's, a, it's what the court system can accomplish when it, it works, I think, at its very best. Well, I love that the same class of cases with, yeah. was both the most difficult yeah. and also yeah. the most satisfying yeah. because of the solution. We often see other branches of government and others in society inject politics into the selection of judges and justices. But how about the judges themselves? Do political beliefs influence how judges decide cases or maybe personal moral beliefs? Well, everybody comes to the bench with a whole life history behind them. But I think what our good judges learn to do is to divorce those personal feelings from the decisions on cases. Um, we require judges who can't be fair in deciding a judge to recuse themselves, to disqualify uh, from a particular case. I actually had that happen once when I was a court of appeals judge. We had a criminal case, and it involved sexual abuse by a physician and his patients. And I had a friend who had gone through a very similar experience quite, quite close to the time of this case. And I, as I was reading it, I found myself, I was reading the brief of the defendant, and I found myself making counter-arguments in my head. And I thought, I can't do this. So I went and asked another judge to take my place on that panel because I just didn't feel I could, I could be fair and neutral. 
But you have to be able to put your personal views aside. I always gave as an example, I, I think there are many reasons that the death penalty is not very effective, and if I were in charge of the world, I wouldn't have a capital punishment. But I affirmed many verdicts and sentences of capital punishment because that was what the law required. I once had a law school dean ask me if I thought that judges who didn't believe in capital punishment should recuse themselves, should disqualify themselves from those cases. And I said, no, I think they should resign their position. Because when you become a judge, you take an oath to uphold the laws and the Constitution, and you don't get to exempt out particular kinds of cases. If you can't do all of your job, then you shouldn't do your job. That's different from an individual case where you know a person in the case, and so your, your view is impacted by a, a personal or financial bias. But you, and it's, it's more difficult for some than it is for others, but I really think judges, at least the ones I worked with in Arizona, those are the judges I know, really tried their best to not be impacted by political considerations. And I can tell everybody, there was, I was almost 20 years as an appellate judge, and never once in our conference when we were deciding the outcome of a case did we discuss political issues. Not one time. Um, now, were some people impacted by political views? I don't think so. I know we all tried very hard not to be. Thank you. I think that's an important question for much of our audience, and yeah. you answered it very well. You mentioned earlier that at the state court level, the appellate judges have law clerks who assist them, and you also mentioned that you were a law clerk to Justice O'Connor. So let's switch to the federal court system okay. and the U.S. Supreme Court, and tell us anything you'd like about that year of working with Justice O'Connor. Well, it was obviously a fascinating year. Um, the audience, I'm sure, knows that that was the first time that there had been a woman on the United States Supreme Court. It's amazing when you think back to it. I think she was the 102nd justice appointed. Um, 1981, we had gone all those years, and apparently there never had been a woman bright enough or good enough to serve on the United States Supreme Court. It's astounding. But there was... I mean, for me, it was an amazing opportunity. Serving as a law clerk in the United States Supreme Court is always a terrific opportunity. Each justice is entitled to four law clerks. And Justice Stewart, who retired and opened the seat that eventually um, Justice O'Connor took, had hired three law clerks before he retired. And so Justice O'Connor hired those three, but that left her one other position to fill. So we got to see, uh, really, history in the making. Everything she did was the first time a woman justice had ever done it. Every decision she made was the first time a woman justice had ever decided. And every question she asked from the bench was the first time that that lawyer had ever been questioned by a woman justice. I mean, everything about it was unique, um, and it was, it was a great learning experience for me. Thank you. So, Justice McGregor, you mentioned earlier uh, about how a state constitution can offer, I don't want to say more, but different things than what you would see in the U.S. Constitution. So I'd like to ask you a few questions about our Constitution. Uh, first, the Arizona Constitution has had an interesting history regarding the debate about either fully insulating state judges from political pressures or allowing the public to hold judges accountable through some type of democratic process. So between our merit selection process and periodic retention elections, has our state struck a good balance, or do retention elections threaten to inject politics into judging to an inappropriate degree? Yeah. I think we've really struck a pretty good balance. Um, for those who aren't familiar with it, if somebody wants to be a judge on our appellate courts or, in or a trial judge in Maricopa Pinal or Pima County, they have to apply to a nominating commission. I worked with the trial court commissions for Pima County and for Maricopa County and then with the appellate court commission. And we had amazing people serve on these commissions from all different backgrounds, business people and, and medical professionals, psychologists, educators, uh, community activists, and they all came together with, with a real understanding of how important their job was because they take all of the applications, which are long and detailed, 
they go through them all. They call the, the, the persons listed as, as that, you, you know, that you've asked them to call, and then they ask all of these people making recommendations for other people to call. They call it due diligence. Then they choose a limited number of people to interview for each seat. And at the end of those interviews and discussions, all of which incidentally is public, anybody can go and listen to any part of this. The comments about them, the interviews, the discussion by the commission members afterwards, the voting of the commission on a list to send to the governor. And they have to send at least three who cannot all be from the poli same political party. They can send more to the governor. And then the governor has to choose from that list. Then to give another, there are really two things then that, that help assure the, that the judges are good quality. One is the retention elections that you mentioned. And those occur every four years for our trial court and every six years for our appellate judges. And another commission reviews how the judges have been doing since they were appointed or since their last retention election. And that's done through a judicial performance review process where everybody who comes into the court and takes part in the court system gets to rate the judge on their integrity and their legal ability and whether their instructions are clear. And all of those ratings come together with another body called uh, um, that does the, the Commission on, on Judicial Performance. And they recommend whether or not a judge meets qualifications. And that's what everybody sees in their voters' guides, which just came out last week or so, what the vote was and whether or not a judge meets qualifications. And so we have the initial support from the nominating commissions, which just do, I, they're just so impressive. It's a lot of work. And then we have the performance review and the commission that goes over all of that. And then we have the retention election. So if a judge is not performing his or her judicial duties, there are a number of ways to catch that along the way. We haven't had very many judges not be retained, and I think that that's a function of how carefully our, our nominating commissions choose those who can be selected. So there was about 10 years ago some real concern that retention elections would become very political. That hasn't really happened, and I think the reason is that people who, who wanted to challenge a particular judge realized that if they were successful in having the judge not be retained, that didn't mean that somebody they wanted would be a judge. That meant the replacement would come through the whole nominating commission again, have to show their qualifications, and then get on a list to go to the governor. So uh, in Arizona, it's worked really well. Nothing is completely apolitical. But I think we've, we've done a, a very good job. And I think that the measure of it is the quality of the bench in Arizona, which really is outstanding. I agree. <laughs> so many citizens know about basic constitutional rights and amendments to our US Constitution. They might not know how much about their state constitutions, um, especially that it potentially provides greater rights and liberties on some topics. And you mentioned that before earlier in this interview. So can you recall a case that illustrated some notable characteristics of the Arizona Constitution? Well, there are two kind of two classes of cases that I've seen the most often that deal with rights in the Arizona Constitution not specific to the federal. One is the right of privacy, which the United States Supreme Court has kind of inferred from other rights, and those are the rights that gave rise to, you know, contraceptive rights and, and eventually the right of a woman to an abortion. Um, but the Arizona Constitution specifically gives a right to privacy. Not too surprising for a state as independent as Arizona was um, when the Constitution was adopted. So there have been a number of cases saying what precisely does that right of privacy mean when it's specifically in the Constitution. Another area that's different within our Constitution, and again reflects our historic roots, is that when the Constitution was developed, you mentioned, I mentioned we developed, we adopted all the old English common law. Some of those are very, very interesting um, rights of action, but mostly they deal with property and with rights if, if you've been harmed by someone. But our Constitution specifically said that those rights of action cannot be infringed. Now, in most states, if the legislature wants to change the way the court um, 
with the rules that apply to tort actions or to property actions, the legislature can do that by statute. In Arizona, if the statute would infringe the right to action, if it would actually make that right less valuable, then the legislation is not compliant with the Constitution. So those are just two areas where our Constitution gives greater rights, uh, has been interpreted that way, than does the federal Constitution. That's wonderful. Thank you for, for illustrating that for us, because that was actually a question I had always thought about asking a justice or a judge, um, and I got my opportunity to ask that. There you go. A final question before a recommendation. For all courts, what is the importance of diversity of experience on the courts? Do judges with a diversity of backgrounds, knowledge, and experiences make for better administration of the law? I think diversity always helps. There's been some really interesting research done on this, not with, well, some with the courts, and some with juries, where they had mock juries and they had either all white or they had racially mixed and they looked to see whether it made a difference and it did make a difference and the best part was that the juries with greater diversity were more careful in finding the facts talked more about the facts in the case uh, and they found with judges that having a woman on a panel that deals with a gender discrimination suit makes a difference in the way the case is handled. Um, having a, a, a minority, a racial minority judge didn't have that same impact on employment cases. But there have been, there's been other research done, and in my own view, I mean, there are so many types of diversity that can impact what a court does. Diversity in your subject matter, that, that you dealt with as a lawyer, uh, geographic diversity, diversity in educational experience. I mean, but the, the broader the range can be, the better your discussion and understanding is. We all, we all experience that, I think, in our just conversations with friends. When you have people who know about things from different points of view, you understand better by the time you get to the end of the discussion. And I think that's true, of course, also. Thank you. Justice McGregor, a few years ago, you and I joined others on a project for Justice O'Connor to develop a web-based teaching tool on civics. So I know that you joined me in recommending the website icivics.org for those who want to learn more about our system of government, including the courts, and for middle school teachers and other teachers who are looking for lesson plans. Absolutely. iCivics is a great resource, and it's not just for students. These are basically games set up as games, but I've done any number of them, and I've learned quite a lot from them. They're not only for students. Adults can really use the iCivics uh, website also. It's very, very useful. It's good to know. That's actually new knowledge for me, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you for that, both of you. And thank you, Judge Barton. Thank you, Justice McGregor. Thank you for, uh, I call him professor because I just graduated, but thank you, Charles Cairos, for co-hosting this episode. I know you, you all are busy people, so we'll sign off now, and I appreciate your time. And this, I think, will have the most impact on a wide number of our audience members who, who didn't have the the opportunity or, or didn't think about law school. And quite frankly, even in high school, I didn't learn what I learned in law school. So it, it was a privilege for me to, to go to law school for three years and learn what I learned and have access to, to all of you. So I just, this is our way of giving back uh, to the public and giving them that access. Well, thank you for having thank us. You.